Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. Honor, pleasure, privilege. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Two five. See now, I, I say the I say the buck first. So that's that's always good. Uh, what a day! Uh, you have GOP's health care plan B underway, and it looks like plan B so far is a lot of I don't know. You know that guy knows. Uh, someone else knows. No one seems to know. We have some very broad strokes to talk to you about that single most important policy issue facing the country right now. Uh, one that has uh, impacts that we're all very aware of, and one that I think uh, a, a discussion, a debate underway right now that has us all questioning, what is the purpose of the GOP? Republicans have the House, they have the Senate, they have the White House, and yet it feels like somehow the Democrats still get their way. That can only be possible if... We come to the conclusion that some Republicans really actually agree with the Democrats on a lot of this. And I think that's what's going on, that there are Republicans who are really not, in fact, conservatives, not, in fact, even Republicans. They, they are neither of those things. They're just whatever is convenient for them to win elected office at the time. Uh, so we will talk a bit more about health care, where this is right now. I will give you all the updates on that from the last 24 hours or so. We also will be talking about the White House war on leaks. You've got new White House communications director, uh, Anthony Scaramucci. The mooch is loose, and he's out there doing all kinds of stuff right now. We're going to play some of his greatest hits from earlier today. you got to say one thing. He is not afraid. He will, he will take the fight to anyone. He will go on the networks. He will... Call in and and he says what's on his mind. I think that much is clear. He is he is straightforward uh, with what he's feeling. So we will discuss that also a bit on the Fusion GPS testimony today. More interesting connections between that shadowy group that pulled together the anti-Trump dossier and the Russian Magnitsky Act and. This Russian lawyer, Veselnitskaya, that met with Trump Jr. and Jared and Manafort in Trump Tower. So there's a lot going on there. Um, and then, you know, we've also got some other things that we'll be hitting later on in the show, including new poll out from Pew on uh, what Muslim Americans think about, well, a whole bunch of things. And because it's American Heroes Week, which is a White House directive that unfortunately has gotten largely lost in the shuffle this week. Uh, we will have some American heroes joining us tonight on the show uh, to tell you their stories and how they overcame adversity and uh, what real heroes sound like, who real heroes are. I, I believe the president did uh, attend a ceremony today where medals were given out to the police officers who 
saved those members of Congress from that mass assassination attempt. And I also saw Steve Scalise was released from the hospital. So uh, all those thoughts and prayers have been answered. He's on his way to recovery. Uh, but so the White House did uh, did have some period of time today where uh, American Heroes Week was uh, was uh, celebrated, I suppose you'd say, or uh, whatever, whatever, however they're calling it. I don't, know, I don't know how they're discussing it, but it was uh, it was given some time today. So um, that's good news. Uh, on to health care, for which I have no uh, particularly, particularly good news at all. Uh, here's what we've got. The Senate is in the midst of a back and forth on what will be the so-called skinny repeal measure, which is not really repeal, um, but the skinny repeal will do the following things. It will get rid of the individual mandate. Uh, by the way, repeal, a definition of repeal, just if you go on the Internet, just type it in. Just, what's the definition of repeal? To revoke or annul a law or congressional act. To revoke or annul. So a skinny repeal is not really a repeal. It's a misnomer. There can be no such thing. There's repeal and there's not repeal. But they realize that they need to pretend that they're keeping their promises because the promise was made so many times over the last, oh, seven years or so. Oh, by the way, we're going to talk about Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened? But that's later on in the show. So you have to hang out with me the, for a bit, and then I'll get to Hillary Clinton's book, which is titled What Happened, which is amazing, by the way. Okay, but back to... Uh, back to health care, back to skinny repeal. Uh, I'm calling it the GOP's health care plan B. It, it's really plan C, D, E, F. I mean, who knows? They're changing it up with each passing day. You've had a few uh, senators already come out. And now we're talking about GOP senators saying that they are uncomfortable with even where the repeal is. And the skinny repeal is supposed to pull the individual mandate, pull the employer mandate, get rid of a tax on devices that uh, conservatives don't like. I don't think that I don't think the medical device tax was keeping any of you up at night with fear, but I'm sure that there's some study out there that shows that it's be very helpful to uh, industry and business or whatever if we got rid of the medical device tax. Uh, then they also will do some tinkering with the uh, man with the requirements for health care plans. And other than that, a lot of it's going to stay. The big part that will stay has to do with the Medicaid piece of all of this, uh, because you had that Medicaid expansion as part of Obamacare. Who would have thought, you know, in retrospect, if you go back to the Supreme Court decision about Obamacare, remember, it was a 5-4 decision, and it was only possible because John Roberts, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, decided that a penalty and a tax weren't things that actually had specific meaning and that you could just rewrite the law for the purposes of making it constitutional. Uh, so, but that, that part of it stayed. The Medicaid expansion in which the Obama administration, in what was truly devious but brilliant as a form of coercing states— said, you have to expand Medicaid, you have to be part of a Medicaid expansion under the the Obamacare uh, law, or else we will pull all Medicaid funding for you. 
which just means now that, you know, the states that have gotten used to giving out free health care to people, health care welfare, which is what Medicaid is, would have it revoked and it would be blamed on the Republicans. And that was considered by the Supreme Court overly coercive. And that was not I think it was seven two in that decision that was not allowed to stand. Had that been allowed, I think you have to go back now and look at this and. If you had had mandatory Medicaid expansion, there would have been no chance, no prayer of getting rid of Obamacare for decades because no, there would not be a state, with the exception maybe of some of some very, very red states, but there would not be a state where that wouldn't seem politically suicidal for whomever the elected representative was, right? Meaning that if you were a Republican and you're saying, well, we're going to get uh, you know, we're going to lose all Medicaid funding, you'd be you'd be gone. You'd be done. So they would have locked everybody in. So so really, o- Obamacare was set up when they wrote that law to force all of the states into it and make it politically impossible forever to get rid of. It's some evil genius stuff, and they almost pulled it off. Now, the part of Obamacare that continued, of course, that stayed uh, alive despite the Supreme Court challenge to it, despite that it was a 5-4 a nail-biter of a decision had to do with the individual mandate. Now, with the so-called skinny repeal, they will be getting rid of the individual mandate, if it goes through, by the way. It's not even clear they have 50 votes for this. And as I'm talking about all this, and I want to also discuss a little bit about the realities of single-payer. By the way, uh, a vote taken today at single-payer, not a single Democrat willing to stand up in the Senate and say, yeah, yeah, single-payer. So, but that was just a, that was symbolism, I understand. But single-payer has become much of the discussion. I want to talk to you about uh, more Canada, but maybe a little bit of the UK as well, and how the health services there really work, and what the future looks like in this country of the health care system, based on how the debate is going right now with the Republicans and what's happening in Congress. Um, Because it's not as catastrophic as some people say, but it's much, much, much worse than most people say, including a lot of Republicans, if we continue on this current trajectory. Uh, I can tell you what what it means. We can look to the North. We can look to Canada's health service and get a pretty good sense of how things would go here in America, and it is it is discouraging, to say the least, if we had single-payer, and single-payer looks like the trajectory that we're on right now, because if you have Republicans that are just going to change some of the, uh, the language here and there in Obamacare, if they're not going to take it out root and branch, if they're not going to get rid of the architecture of the law, then it, it all continues on. People get more used to it. It, it gets deeper. It, it gets deeper into the bureaucracy, and it's even harder in the future to get rid of it. You see, they, they knew all this when they wrote Obamacare. They had been waiting for a very long time to do what they did to the health care system. And that's why they that's why they set it up with that coercive mechanism for the states. And that's why it was front loaded with all of the goodies. And front-loading the goodies, I should note, that's the key problem with all single-payer systems. And this is what, this is what people don't, uh, don't talk about, don't understand, don't pay attention to, or lie about, depending on what and where we're, uh, well, what and where we're discussing. You see, in the Canadian healthcare system, uh, they—well, you know what, let me put a hold on, on Canada for a second. 
Um, but in the U.S. healthcare system, people will say, well, look at Medicare. Medicare is great. People love Medicare, right? This is what you're always going to, you're always told. And, and sure, Medicare is a very popular program. Once you're 65, you go on Medicare and you've already had Democrat politicians coming out saying, why can't we just do Medicare for all? Well, because it's wildly expensive. By limiting it to a certain segment of the population, people over 65, what you're able to do is uh, pretend that the costs aren't quite as bad. You're able to push it off into the future. You know, you'll hear about how the trust fund will run out in 2020 something or you know, how they're going to run out of some parts of, of Medicare funding. I think, I think specifically the part of Medicare that pays for hospitals. You'll hear about this and people say, well, but that's it's not really true that it will go bankrupt, meaning that it can't pay any obligations in the future. But in about 10 years, based on everything we can see now, based on the demographic trends, if you're going to continue with the Medicare system, guess what's going to have to happen? You're going to have to have substantial raises uh, on taxes. You're going to have to pay a lot more in taxes. That's that's the way this is all headed. And you're going to have fewer workers supporting more retirees on Medicare. So Medicare represents uh, or represented about 15 percent of the 2016 federal budget. It'll be at least 20 percent in 20 years. But this will have effects on all the rest of the economy because that's money that now you can't spend on, you know, defense, education, you name it. So what happens? Your taxes go up. So you're going to have this whole – it's intergenerational theft. That's what's going on here. It's, it's a Ponzi scheme. People today are paying for Medicare that will not be there at the same level for them or will require even more aggressive and confiscatory taxation of the generation below the people who are paying into but not yet covered by Medicare. See, those, those, are, the, those are the only two ways that this can be handled. So in the future – on the current trajectory we have, based on what's going on with Medicare, as it is right now for people only over 65, you're going to have to have either a lot more taxes paid to pay for Medicare because the trust fund is going to be gone. It's going to it's going to be insolvent, not bankrupt, but insolvent. The trust fund will be gone. It will be losing money. And never mind, by the way, what happens with the debt in the meantime because we're, the, the debt's never ending. Right? It's going to be $20 trillion, $25 trillion, $30 trillion. But the government will be in charge of your health care if it's single payer. And so in the future, when the numbers don't add up, they only have two options. Cut benefits, which they do in some of these single payer countries that people think are so wonderful. So now the government tells you what's an allowable procedure and what's not. Or just tax the tax the 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 bleepity bleep bleep out of everybody who is not yet getting those benefits. Um, or is paying a lot more into the benefits, depending on whether this is there's age, there's an age limit or not. But paying paying into it for the future. So those are your only options are to raise taxes a lot on people, or to give people a lot less in the future, because the numbers don't add up. We li- we cannot afford it as much as we would like to afford it. That's why saying single payer for all, it's like the minimum wage debate. It sounds good, people like it. But we're really just being lied to, and nobody knows the facts, and nobody wants to add up the numbers. All right, all right. We've got more. We've got more. i got to go into a break. We'll be right back. Up on BuckSexton.com, we have uh, Shields High t-shirts as of today. Go check them out, BuckSexton.com slash store. People are like, what's Shields High? You'd be like, uh, obviously, when the uh, w- when you had the phalanx gathered together, 
of hoplites in ancient Greece, and they had their hoplon shield, from which the term hoplite is derived, they would have to hold the shields uh, up above their waist in an interlocking pattern to give full protection and shields high. And you can tell people about it. See, it's, it's a conversation starter. You know, that, that's why you want to rock with it. Plus, the moment, any anytime you can start talking about ancient Greece, you can start making references to the movie 300. It's just a win-win for everyone. Um, but I digress. Although, actually, you know, the uh, Testudo formation for Turtle was, it's been in a whole bunch of different uh, shows and series over time. But I remember, actually, in the movie Troy, they set up on the beach when Brad Pitt, who's playing... Achilles, when his uh, Myrmidons, uh, they storm the beach, they go into a Testudo formation, tortoise formation, which is sort of like a phalanx, but also you have shields uh, held up by those who are not in the first row in order to protect from missiles. Anyway, anyway, so um, I, I want to get back into the healthcare thing, but I don't have the time for that right now. So just as a little interlude, as a little teaser for some things we'll talk about later in the show today, I, I told you that we would get into the, the war on leaks. By the way, I'm. Well, let me tell you this right now, that the press was so complacent while Obama went after uh, the, well, essentially did surveillance of journalists who find leakers, and that the press was like, well, it's Obama, so, you know, it can't be that bad. They are. Uh, that is going to come back to haunt not just the not just the press corps but America. I think because this is going to be uh, the the freedom of the press when the government feels like it can just grab phone records for journalists. And I'm, I'm not saying that Trump has done this or will do this, but it, this DOJ might. Uh, when the government feels like they can do that, there's really no such thing as as unofficial sources anymore because they can find them <laughs> trust me if, if they if they're able to pull journalists records digital records they'll they'll find whoever they want to find uh so that's a big question that looms over all this but that's on the serious side of the leaks on the not as serious not that it's like haha funny but on the not as serious side of it you've got all the palace intrigue stuff the the uh white house whisper campaigns and there's the Priebus versus mooch throwdown that is looming here for Anthony Scaramucci, the new White House communications director. And you had Speaker Ryan say this today. ...job at the White House, and I believe he has the president's confidence. So if, 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 if those two gentlemen have differences, my advice would be to sit down and settle your differences. Yeah, he said that he thinks Reince is doing a great job as chief of staff. Um, okay. I don't think I don't think Reince is going to have that job much longer. <laughs> I've already seen some reporting on that one. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you more about that in just just a little bit. We'll get it. Look, it's it's just interesting stuff. I mean, I'm leading off the show, of course, with what matters and what affects all of us and the future of this country. But there is a, a certain um, fascination that I think we all have with what's going on in this in this White House, or. You know, limited fascination. I know there's other things you want to talk about, too, but we will do that and much more. And also the uh, immigration issue, if I can get to that, too. So uh, a lot to cover. Stick around. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Back on to healthcare for a few minutes, your team. Uh, Rolling Stone, which I know is a magazine that probably none of you care about. I certainly don't. It's, it's uh, It has debased itself many times over in the past. But Rolling Stone on its cover asks why Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, 
can't be the U.S. president. Oh, wouldn't that just be so nice? Now, Canada's a great, pa- great place, lovely people, uh, fantastic ally of the United States. They're our, our brothers and sisters to the north. But their health care system comes up in the health care debate in this country often because people will say, well, look at what Canada has. Why can't we just do that? Now, first of all, anytime you try to scale something out and make it much bigger, you're going to have more. And whenever the government does that, you'll have more problems of inefficiency and more bureaucracy, more red tape. This is why when people say, why can't we just have the VA system for the whole country. Well, hold on a second. First of all, there are plenty of problems, as I know many of you are thinking right now, with the VA system as it is. And the VA system deals with, uh, in the in the low millions of patients, I think five or six, seven million, something along those lines, uh, whereas the U.S. has 320 million people in it. So taking the VA system, where the government actually runs the hospitals, pays the doctors, the nurses, and expanding that out is is an issue of scale, just like with a business. You know, you may be able to bake a cake, but if you try to bake uh, 100 cakes, you could have a problem, right? I mean, I know I'm, I'm wildly oversimplifying, but this is the basic concept. So that's one issue, and Canada's obviously got a much smaller population than the United States. That's why I'm bringing up the issue of scale. Even with that, uh, if you look at what Canada does, and it does have a single-payer system, and you just go, and uh, the only payment that I believe uh, the doctors there who are in the system are allowed to take uh, comes from uh, comes from the government. They have to uh, take what the take the Canadian Health Service uh, payment, unless you're completely private and, and not going to take any payments from the Canadian government. There is some private. Health insurance. And look, I'm not a Canadian health expert. I haven't been to Canada in quite a while. But I was reading about it because I wanted to try to familiarize myself with, well, how does single-payer work up there and how does it work in Canada? Here are the big problems with single-payer there, um, the problems with it. And, and keep in mind that the U.S. is it's, it's different. We've got a lot more people and all that. Uh, one is you wait about twice as long for anything that's not routine primary uh, care or emergency care there. So if you have a pressing health need, if you need to see a specialist, if you need to find out if you have a lump that you should be worried about, et cetera, if you have those kinds of problems, you're going to wait twice as long in Canada as you do in the United States, roughly speaking, which, of course, can be the difference between, well, life and death or a speedy recovery or a long, drawn-out battle or any number of things, right? So you are waiting considerably longer. This is a form of rationing. Waiting is a form of rationing. If a doctor says to you, I'm happy to see you and I'm happy to take your government insurance in nine months, are you happy? No, obviously the doctor is spacing it out because his time has value and he is, this is a form of rationing by government. But the part of the Canadian health system that you really won't hear about, that you, sh- you, you can't ignore if you want to know what's going on here, is that the vast majority of the Canadian population is a, a quick drive to the United States, certainly a quick flight, but a quick drive. And so if there's a real problem and they're in the private health insurance market, if the wealthier in Canada are seeking the best of the best, guess what? They can come to America. We serve as the, uh, as the not the last resort, but as really the, the first choice in a, in a very serious health circumstance for those who can afford it. In Canada, so we provide a, uh, a a 
private insurance valve for the Canadians. We are an, another option for them. And this happens all the time. People go to Seattle. They go to Chicago. They go to, you know, Minneapolis for their health care, which is great. I mean, you know, we love you, Canada. I'm not, it's not a bad thing. But just if you're going to understand how their system works, let's be clear that they've got America next door. So that makes things different. That makes things different automatically. Um, but then when you look at some of the ways that it works in other countries, you're talking about having much higher taxes. Much higher taxes means less private sector growth, means less entrepreneurship, less ingenuity, less uh, advances in a lot of parts of the healthcare industry. Um, but even before we could get in any of that, the government is already running $20, $20 trillion into the red. There's no end of, of that in sight. At some point, you will have a real problem where just the servicing of that debt will be crowding out other aspects of the U.S. economy in a way that we are aware of and feel. And you're going to have substantially fewer people working to support those who are covered by Medicare. Let's just assume that Medicare stays as it is. You're going to have substantially fewer people. Um, I think you'll have 2.8 covered workers for each beneficiary which is down from 3.2 in 2008, um, and it will be 2.2 workers for each beneficiary in the next couple of decades. So we've got a demographic problem on top of a debt problem on top of a health care problem. But no one wants to tell you this. They'll just say, well, we can pay for it for now, and eventually we'll have to change some stuff. And what will happen is there will just be political food fights over, well, what gets covered, what doesn't get covered, who gets coverage, what do you have to pay? And the government will be making all these decisions for you. Government will have the power over, well, certainly the power over your purse and also the power of what ultimately turns into life and death over you by deciding who gets care and what's covered and what's not and who gets to see doctors. If that's the future that we want as a country, well, that's where we're headed right now. But if it's not, we really need to speak up right now. There's no time to waste. There's no time to lose. Uh, we have people who are well-paid, very coddled U.S. senators who care more about their own political future than about countless tens of millions of Americans who are suffering as a result of this Obamacare legislation and just what it's doing to our health to health care but also what it's doing to our relationship between citizen and state this should never have been put in the hands of government government creep in the healthcare industry which is a, a, a fifth or a sixth of the economy uh, has been going on for decades now they already do a vast amount of Health, of the overall health care spending, and it's just increasing all the time. And really, when you look at what's going on with the insurance companies, they're doing what the government's telling them to. I mean, private insurance is so regulated as to be just an extension of government policy at this point. And that's what needed to change. That's what we were promised would change, and that's what is not changing with skinny repeal. That's what is not changing based on what the Senate Republicans are proposing right now. It'll still be the government calling the shots. You know, fear is a very powerful tool of manipulation. And everyone is scared of, well, I think we're all scared at some level of dying, and we're all scared of getting sick. And so the government manipulates this and pretends that it has the answers and will make us healthier or will make us well 
when, in fact, I think we would be much better off if we were allowed the freedom to choose our own path when it comes to health care. And this is just going to be a jumping off point, by the way, for government intrusion into, into much more of life as well. Don't think that it stops with health care. Uh, but we'll see what the Republicans do. I'm, I am sanguine about this whole thing right now. Uh, trying not to be depressed. I am trying not to be cynical. But I think we've been lied to. I think we've been lied to my fellow conservatives a lot over the last, well, for years now, about what the Republican Party is really trying to accomplish And I know that this was, at some level, a part of Trumpism and Donald Trump's wave. But I have not yet seen how Trump will break that. I have not yet seen how he's going to change the way way business is done inside of D.C. I'm not saying he won't or can't or isn't willing to, but I haven't seen it yet. So far, it is business as usual in D.C. for the Congress. Very little has changed. Trump is in charge of the federal agencies, which is good. Trump is in charge of the regulatory bodies, which is good. That's all helpful. That's positive, positive for the economy, positive for us. But Congress has got to get it going here, or else we should probably start thinking about, I don't know. We would start talking about having a third party. We're going to have libertarians walk around, start lecturing us all on uh, how all drugs should be legal. I don't know. So you don't usually hear about the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, Director. He's a career law enforcement guy. I think he was actually NYPD at one point. He uh, worked for Border Patrol, and now he's a DHS running Immigrations and Customs Enforcement acting. Uh, his name is Thomas Homan, and he spoke today at a press conference at the White House. And I wanted to share with you some of what he said because it makes a lot of sense, and you don't hear people talking about this the way that— well, the way that he did, play it. The most violent gangs, MS-13, and su- suggesting that that's what ICE is focused on. I'm reading a story here from just last month that said uh, the biggest number uh, that ICE arrests are up of uh, illegal immigrants and the sharpest spike is seen for non-criminals. I think that the other side of the uh, issue would say that I- ICE and this administration really is going after non-criminals and just using these moments to sort of suggest otherwise. What do you think about that? ridiculous. I mean, when, when under prior administration, non-criminals were not a priority. So when you go from zero to 100, of course you're going to see the biggest rise in that. The executive orders are clear. Anybody reads the executive orders, no population's off the table. So non-criminals, yeah, those that are got a, a court order from a judge that refused to leave, we're looking for them. Those who enter the country illegally, I, I've said it a hundred times, that is a crime. Notice what you said there. Yeah, if, if a judge says you need to be deported, this is the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement acting chief saying, yeah, that means that we're going to try to find the person that's been told that they need to be deported as a function of law. Into this country illegally. And when they get their due process at great government, at great taxpayer expense, billions of dollars are spent on border security, immigration court, detention. So when they get their due process and a, and a federal judge orders them removed, that order needs to mean something or the whole, the whole system has no integrity. Nowhere else in law enforcement has anybody asked a law enforcement agency to ignore a judge's order from a bench. They've had a due process. Our job is to enforce those orders, and that's what we do. And for the people... Again, notice what he's saying. It undermines the integrity of the judiciary. It undermines rule of law. 
and it undermines the law enforcement agencies that are tasked with specifically immigration-related crimes and regulations. Uh, So, yeah. I mean, this is what he's saying is all obvious, and yet isn't it so refreshing that instead of standing up there and saying, oh, you know, we're just going to, like, prioritize, and, you know, so if you're a... If you're a serial murderer or rapist, you know, and and you're illegal, you know, maybe maybe then we'll send you home. But you know, otherwise, well, you know, you can stay. And, and there are additional problems with that, even just beyond the uh, the the undermining of of the rule of law, which he gets into. Keep going. People say that we concentrate too much on those that are not criminal beyond them committing a crime, entering the country illegally. They've not committed yet another crime. You should ignore them. They've been here. Let them go. That message drives what happened in San Antonio. That message drives what happened in Victoria, Texas, that I investigated back in 2003. What he's saying there, and he he referenced a case that I talked to you about earlier this week, the smuggling of of human beings that occurs is is in some ways encouraged by the sanctuary policies and, yes, the law enforcement prioritization That occurred under the previous administration, because between sanctuary cities and the Obama administration saying that interior enforcement is not a priority, that people will be allowed to stay, that the relatives of uh, deferred childhood arrivals will be allowed to stay, that the people that are uh, promoting those policies don't also take responsibility, as they should, for encouraging the illegal transport because it sets up a magnet. The attraction here is that if you can get into the country, if you can just beat the Border Patrol, essentially, you'll get to stay. Well, that means that people will take that risk because if you thought that, you you know, you get into the U.S., maybe you last here for a few months, maybe even a few years, but eventually they're going to deport you. Why spend the five or ten thousand dollars a head that they pay to a coyote a, a human trafficker uh why do that right why would you go through that process why would you take the risk and if, as we've seen the risk can be death an excruciatingly painful death this is what happened uh, down in texas uh last week where you had people that were packed into the back of a truck and they overheated and suffocated and It should also be noted, and I didn't have this part of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement director uh, saying this, but he did. I I watched more of his his statement today that you're also funding, you're putting money into the hands of cartels and these transnational, incredibly ultra-violent gangs that are involved with the human smuggling. Because their their profits go up when more people want to pay them to get into the U.S. because they think they can stay. So there are all of these additional effects. There are secondary effects and some very uh, troubling and, and very problematic ones that come from lax policies uh, in the U.S. on our immigra- on immigration. Sanctuary cities is certainly uh, at the heart of it, but also just the, the lack of interior enforcement. It's one thing to prioritize getting the worst uh, out of the country in terms of violent felons. And and even that doesn't happen, right? The guy who shot Kate Steinle had been deported four or five times. How can we think that the border is secure? How can we think that it's hard to get into this country when that individual can get in so many, can get kicked out and come back in so many times? 
And it's not a criminal mastermind we're talking about here. But you, you could just see, I mean, those of you who get a chance, I, I would encourage you to go back and watch some of that press conference today. Just the, the, the jaws agape uh, 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 of all of these journalists in the press room, in the briefing, who are like, oh, well, but what do, you, what do you mean you're going to enforce the immigration law? I mean, wait, so, so hold on a second, sir. You, you're saying that if a federal judge declares that somebody is in the country illegally and should be deported, th- th- that they're going to deport them? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually what he's saying. And, you know, if, if it's such a terrible thing, then the Democrats and the left should publicly lobby to have an open borders state. If it's such a horrible thing, then that. But, you know, if they're going to have an open borders state, then I want to have a talk about how, you know, can't have a welfare state. You can't have them both. You can't threaten to incarcerate me and everyone else who's limited government and believes in sovereignty in this country for not wanting to pay taxes that are going to fund the whole world because then now we're an open borders welfare state. So there's there's a problem. But see, that's what it all comes down to. They won't be honest about how they feel on the issue and what they want to happen on the issue. They'll pretend on the left that they believe in rule of law when it comes to immigration. But really, they just want open borders, which would completely, of course, dissolve the Republican Party and conservatism and limited government. But it also would eventually just dissolve the country. So I guess they're okay with that, too. Uh, very interesting press conference today, though, when it came to the immigrations, uh, immigration part of it. Uh, we're going to talk about, speaking of press conferences, the uh, war on leaks in this White House. It's heating up. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. I got to say, there was some crazy stuff last night I saw breaking between the new White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, the Mooch, as people tell me he is called. That's what his friends call him, as I understand it, the Mooch. So the Mooch is loose, uh, and he's doing his thing down in D.C. And there was a, a whole series of events last night. I'll give you the quick rundown on it, and then we can talk about the series of events earlier today that came after that and it's it's just you guys if if you want to make sense of all this for me by all means but this is starting to get into a realm where i i don't i don't have forget having all the answers i don't even have great theories as to how all this is happening anyway so you had politico publishing politico the left-wing politics website in dc they were uh publishing a uh, financial disclosure form from Anthony Scaramucci. And Scaramucci, the mooch, he immediately goes uh, on to Twitter and says that he's going to be telling the FBI about the criminal leak, uh, a a possibly felonious leak of his uh, financial disclosure information. And he, in the tweet, for those of you who don't do Twitter, he he tagged... uh, he wrote in Reince Priebus's Twitter handle. So he basically wrote, like, he called out Reince Priebus in his in Twitter. And in the context of felonious leaker, possibly felonious leaker. And I think people were just, I mean, I, I know I saw this, and I was immediately like, you've got, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what is going on here? I had no idea, really, 
what was going on with with all that. And sure enough, it's led to a lot of people saying that there's a, well, I think there is probably a huge power struggle going on in the White House. They didn't want Scaramucci down there. He's a Trump loyalist, a Trump confidant, even though he did say some bad stuff about Trump in the primary. I mean, I figured that someone like me, for example, who I'm just going to put it out there, would be phenomenal in a White House communications role, but that's never going to happen with this administration. Uh, But I figured that if you were like a crew supporter in the primary, as I was, then, you know, you have no chance of working for this administration. Turns out Scaramucci, who called Trump a hack on TV, is really close with Trump and everything is fine. So, you know, and, and Scaramucci's owned up to all that. He's deleted previous tweets that were critical of Trump or that were kind of leftist in terms of their or at least Democratic in terms of their political leanings. But now he's down there and he's got Reince. And the story is that Reince Priebus, uh, who's chief of staff, well, he is thought of as what well, I believe they call him prancing Priebus and that he's sort of a a preening and self-satisfied fellow and only cares about how he looks to the outside world. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I've never dealt with Ryan Priebus. I have no idea. But that's just the story that I read about this. So you have a power struggle between these two individuals. And on the one hand, you can really see how this fits into the whole narrative about Trump versus the establishment and draining the swamp and all of that. And it's now the, the battleground for that, though, is through the realm of leaks. And so that's how you have Scaramucci calling out Reince last night. And then you also had a reporter, uh, Saliza from CNN, saying that he could confirm, in fact, that it was a. Uh, the, the, anyway, the, the, they, there was a calling out of, of Priebus. And so. I just think that, you know, this this whole feud blew up last night and, you know, way well after hours on social media. I saw this happening in real time. And then this morning you saw this whole issue of the leaks and you had uh, Chris Cuomo and Anthony Scaramucci who have a very kind of like, you know, hey, like, uh, you know, you talking to me? I mean, that's kind of the, the vibe between the two of them. Uh, if you watch the whole interview, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Cuomo's kind of like, I mean, come on, my, my man. I mean, you know, come on. Is this how you're really going to do things? And, and Scaramucci's like, hey, like you're looking at me like this. And there's, there's a lot of that in the interview. These are two Italian guys from New York. I get it. I grew up here. Uh, but he, Mooch, the Mooch, Mr. Scaramucci, White House Communications Director, calls out Reince Priebus for, well, says that he can explain himself whether there's any leaking. You know from the Italian expression, the fish stinks from the head down. But I can tell you two fish that don't stink, okay? And that's me and the president. I don't like the activity that's going on in the White House. I don't like what they're doing to my friend. I don't like what they're doing to the president of the United States or their fellow colleagues in the West Wing. Now, if you want to talk about the chief of staff, we have had odds. We have had differences. When I said we were brothers from the, uh, from the podium, that's because we're rough on each other. Some brothers are like Cain and Abel. Other brothers can fight with each other and then get along. I don't know if this is repairable or not. That will be up to the president. But he's the chief of staff. He's responsible for understanding and uncovering and helping me do that inside the White House, which is why I put that tweet out last night. When the journalists who actually know who the leakers are, like Ryan Lizard, they know the leakers. 
Jonathan Swain at Axio. These guys know who the leakers are. I respect them for not telling me because I understand and respect journalistic integrity. However, when I put out a tweet and I put Reince's name in the tweet, they're all making the assumption that it's him because journalists know who the leakers are. So if Reince wants to explain that he's not a leaker, let him do that. I mean, that's that's pretty rough stuff from Scaramucci about Reince. Uh, so there's really, uh, I, I guess, no surprises there at all. And I think you, you got to figure that Priebus is not long for this White House. Probably best for him to resign on his own terms and not go through the humiliating ordeal of having Scaramucci tell him, you fired. Uh, but we'll see if that happens. Also, though, the, the whole notion of leaks, it's very important that we separate out uh, damaging national security leaks. And let's be clear, they need to be damaging. It can't just be the government says, oh, well, everyone knows that and everyone thinks that, but we're going to pretend that that's classified. No, it has to actually be information that, are, that, that could reasonably be interpreted to harm national security that's been publicly released. Um, that's different than, you know, uh, Kushner and Bannon are fighting. That's not uh, that's not a national security matter. That's not a legal matter, in fact. You can be fired for that, but you, if you're an at-will employee, you can be fired for any number of uh, disloyal acts that are completely legal. You know, if you're an at-will employee, you can tell your boss that he or she is a jerk, and you can't go to prison for that, but they can fire you. So I, I think it's important, because I think there are some people out there who are trying to intentionally conflate the notion of a war on leaks or cracking down on leaks the national security leaks with the palace intrigue, behind-the-scenes, White House, backstabbing political leaks. Those are not the same thing. They should not be investigated in the same way, and we should be very clear about the differences between the two. Um, you had some pretty stern stuff from Scaramucci on that. A very, very good idea of who the leakers are, who the senior leakers are in the White House. We'll get to that in a second. What I also want to say is that we are working together, the president and myself and other members of his team in law enforcement, to undercut, undercut and undercover or, or out, if you will, the leakers in the entire country. Uh, as the president would say in his own words, the White House leakers are small potatoes. I'll, I'll talk to you about a few leaks that happened last night that I find reprehensible, but the White House leaks are small potatoes relative to things that are going on with leaking things about Syria or North Korea or leaking things about Iraq, uh, those are the types of leaks that are so treasonous that 150 years ago people would have actually been hung for those types of leaks. As you can see, he's saying that people would have been, uh, he says hung, I think he meant hanged, not to be the guy who has to parse words, or as Scaramucci was saying in that interview, to be the proofreader, but it's hanged, not hung when you're talking about people. Uh, that's actually not true. Uh, a, a national security leak to the press uh, w would not result in even 150 years ago, uh, at least not the kind that, well, I guess it depends on which leak we're talking about, but some of the stuff we've seen certainly would not result in a, in a treason charge or a, a death sentence. And treason's a very specific charge. People are throwing it around a lot. Uh, that's dangerous because treason is a capital offense and it is listed in the Constitution as a crime against this country. We need to be very specific about what is and is not treason. The law is specific about it. It is aid to the enemy in a time of war. It's not saying something that some people in government don't like, but that's a whole separate discussion. So 
This war between Priebus and Scaramucci is going to continue to play out with, I think, Scaramucci clearly winning sooner rather than later. And this war on leaks is just getting started. We'll have more team, uh, including the fate of Jeff Sessions as AG, in just a few. Fusion GPS, by the way. Well, to talk to us about it, we're joined by Ned Ryan. He is founder and CEO of American Majority Action and a former presidential writer for President George W. Bush. Ned, great to have you back. Buck, great to be back. Okay, so there was Browder testimony today on Russia and Fusion GPS. And what did we learn? What do we know? Well, we we learned a few things that a lot of us have suspected and been uh, writing about on certain levels. But, uh, you know, the the thing that we knew is that uh, Fusion GPS, at the time that they were writing the fake dossier, the steel dossier, the golden shower dossier, whatever you want to call it, they were, in fact, working on behalf of the Russian government and, again, the Russian lawyer that met with Donald Trump Jr. to uh, overturn the Magnitsky Act. And, you know, so the thing that we found out today you know, when Senator Graham asked Bill Browder of Hermitage Capital under oath, do you believe that Fusion GPS was working for the Russians? Browder's response was in the spring and summer of 2016, Fusion was receiving money indirectly from a senior Russian government official. And so you look at some of the things that we suspected and now under oath, we can say with certainty these guys were receiving money and working on behalf of the Russian state, yet did not file FARA, the Foreign Foreign Agent uh, Act, to, to let people know they were acting on behalf of a, of a foreign uh, nation. So as they're acting on behalf of the Russian state is when they're actually coming up with the fake dossier. And, and Buck, you know, you, you with your former work at the CIA – Again, this goes back to, I suspect, and I think we will find out eventually at some point along the line, there were Russian counterintelligence guys feeding fake information to Christopher Steele to sow disinformation into the U.S. election system. What can you tell us specifically about this? This uh, was this was up on Fox News. Uh, Bill Browder explains to Fox News the connections between Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya and Fusion GPS. So they were working together, again, on overturning and, and, and reversing the Magnitsky Act. And what Fusion GPS was doing as they're working on with the Russian lawyer, they were going after the story and, again, trying to sow disinformation, saying that, in fact, Sergei Magnitsky, who worked for Browder, um, they had uncovered massive financial fraud, $230 million. Uh, Magnitsky was arrested. Uh, by Putin's government, and eventually uh, beaten to death, Buck. He was beaten to death in a Russian prison by eight riot police with batons. What Fusion GPS was trying to do in regards to saying uh, – the story was saying, oh, he wasn't murdered. In fact, he's not a whistleblower. He was a criminal. And so you start to understand there's an insidious side to Fusion GPS on this. They were going out and attempting to spread disinformation, quite frankly, lies – about what actually took place uh, in this whole situation with Bill Browder and Sergei Magnitsky. And so, you know, Fusion was working on behalf of this Russian lawyer to overturn this act, but did not reveal it, did not file FARA. And again, it all starts to, as it starts to come together, you realize they're doing this work on behalf of the Russian state as they are working and funding the building out of this fake dossier. Well, I'm sure some people listening, and by the way, we're speaking to Ned Ryan, who's the founder and CEO of American Majority Action. Uh, some people listening, Ned, are, are probably going to be wondering, okay, uh, how then are, are we supposed to believe it's a coincidence that there's this Magnitsky Act 
aspect to Fusion GPS's work, and this lawyer, Natalia Veselnitskaya, meets with Trump Jr., Jared Manafort, in Trump Tower, uh, and that's supposed there's a, supposedly some talk about the Magnitsky Act and adoptions. It just seems like that's overly coincidental. What do you think happened? Uh, how did we get to that point? So th- this is, again, it kind of comes to the, the Occam's razor. It's either it was a setup that, again, this was not a mistake, Fusion GPS, building up this fake dossier, all these guys end up with Donald Trump Jr., or B, they really were, in fact, trying to lobby on behalf of getting this thing overturned, the Magnitsky Act. Um, you know, so it, it's one of it's one of the other fuck. It's either it was a setup or, in fact, they were innocuously trying to get this thing overturned. Again, I would say in either example, Fusion GPS was acting in such a way that that uh, was unethical. Um, if they were acting on behalf and trying to get this meeting, but yet not revealing that they were working on behalf of the Russian state, that's a problem. If they were trying to do this as a setup, of course, that's an even bigger problem. Um, and I think the thing, too, that I really want the listeners to understand in this whole thing, the Trump-Russia collusion fairy tale in many ways go back, goes back to Fusion GPS and the dossier. And I want people to understand McClatchy was reporting that Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele, again, the MI6 agent that Fusion was paying to produce this dossier, sat down with five outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, The New Yorker, and Yahoo News. Some of those outlets they sat down with twice to brief them on this dossier in the fall of 2016. And you start to understand, Buck, when they injected this idea, this story, into the mainstream media's bloodstream in the fall of 2016, you started to see, again, this narrative start to build and build and build. And at the same time, it makes sense as you understand the most antagonist, some of the most antagonistic outlets towards Trump have been New York Times, Washington Post. CNN, three of the outlets that were sitting in that room when Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele were briefing them on this fake dossier. Uh, again, you can be a coincidence theorist and, and think that all of this just sort of happens, or you can maybe draw some of your own conclusions, folks, about some of these dots. You can start connecting them and see where they take you. Um, Ned, switching gears for a second, a lot of shakeup down in the West Wing of the White House, all kinds of interesting reporting going on there today. What do you what do you make about what's going what, what's going on here? Scaramucci's down there. There's a lot of palace intrigue stuff. Where are you on all this? You know, I, I'm trying to stay above and and be you know outside of it, Switzerland, if I can. But I will say this: I think Scaramucci is 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 really making a good point about something. Not only in the West Wing, but across the administration and the bureaucracy as well. Enough with the leaks. These leaks are either political or personal vendettas um, that are taking place, and enough. They, they have to stop. And so I appreciate what he's saying about the leaks coming out of the West Wing have to stop. I think that there should be a zero-tolerance rule moving forward that from, from now on, the first time it happens again, immediately fired. You know, and then again, he's addressing the, the leaks that are spreading across uh, through the bureaucracy. And again, we've had this conversation people weaponizing classified information to go after and try and undermine the president. So, you know, this whole West Wing intrigue, again, there's always going to be some of that. You're dealing with very powerful people in, 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 in the White House. I, I think that uh, you are going to see some staff changes coming pretty soon. But again, the thing that I'm trying to communicate to people, some of this is not that unusual. At the same time, I'm really glad that Scaramucci is calling out and saying, we're not going to tolerate leaks anymore. Because those leaks are distracting us from the real business, which is actually focusing on pushing Trump's agenda forward. So, 
you know, what, I think you're going to see some things get sorted out in the next few weeks, and hopefully, again, there's going to just be a lot more of uh, let's focus on getting the agenda passed and not focus on these petty personal attacks. That really, that, a lot of that's uh, what's taking place with these leaks. And uh, one more for you, Ned, and we're speaking to Ned Ryan, who's CEO of American Majority Action. Uh, on that issue, or, or on that, that general concept, really, of the agenda, uh, right now you've got Congress looking pretty inept, or the Republicans <laughs> in the Senate specifically, looking like they have no idea which way is up. It, just give me a, a quick riff on whether you think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, you know, I would like to think that somehow they're going to be able to organize themselves out of a uh, brown paper bag. I am not convinced that they are. Um, and this, this to me is really kind of a microcosm of some of the problems that are wrong with D- D.C. And again, why Trump was able to win, because people are sick of what is actually happening in D.C. and the dysfunction and the inability to actually make something positive happen. So, you know, I, I hope that they're going to be able to get a few things passed, you know, the skinny bill that they're talking about. They are trying to push through repealing the individual mandate. Concerns me a little bit that they're only talking now about a partial repeal of the employer mandate. They are talking about repealing some of the medical device taxes still. Yeah, it's all it's all still talk, though, Ned. And you and I both know that until it gets to be beyond that, it's uh, I wouldn't have anyone holding their breath out there. Ned Ryan, CEO of American Majority Action. Great to have you, man. Come back soon. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Team hit the break. Be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Well, team, we will take a little break here from all of the politics and inside the Beltway shenanigans uh, for something much more important. It's American Heroes Week. Uh, This was declared by the White House, and we've got an American hero on the line with us right now. John Tig Teagan. He was a member of the Benghazi Annex Security Team. He's a security and military consultant who directly saved many lives while fighting off terrorists in Benghazi over the course of 13 hours. He is a former military sergeant and infantry squad leader. He's the co-author of 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi, which was also made into an excellent movie. Uh, John, thank you so much for your service, and thank you for joining us. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, So uh, please tell us a bit about your story. Oh, you know... You just, I'll just kind of go through it really quick. Uh, you know, September 11, 2012, uh, the ambassador came down to Benghazi, didn't really have a security team they should have had, and the consulate came under attack. Um, I was over at the CIA annex doing the, their security over there, and our chief of base told us to stand down. Uh, so, you know, we got held back for about 25 minutes until uh, Scott came on the radio and said, hey, if you guys don't get here now, we're all going to die. And you know, to us, that was the last draw because, you know, we knew we're the only chance that they had if they were if they're going to live or die that night. So we immediately left, went over there, took us about another 30 minutes, you know, to fight our way onto the compound, uh, the CIA, com- I'm sorry, the U.S. consulate compound. And, you know, we're there for about two hours trying to find locate the ambassador. We couldn't find him. Uh, the State Department guys, they didn't even know if he – was even there anymore because they weren't sure if he had taken off on foot or if he had been uh, kidnapped already. Um, we got counter-assaulted. We repelled that counter-assault, and they are getting ready to mount uh, 50 to 100 more people to come and counter-assault us a third time when uh, we kind of had to make a decision to leave because, you know, six of us now against, you know, 50 to 100 guys. So we left, went back to our compound, and, you know, we pushed off two attacks, and the the third and final attack, uh, they had mortars, and 
was you know three of the four mortars hit directly on top of the roof, um, killed Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods, uh, injured Oz or and uh, Dave Ubin, one of the State Department guys, and that was pretty much uh, the end of the firefights that night. And that's kind of the quick down and dirty of the story. How many? How many? Uh attackers how many terrorists i mean i I saw i've seen 13 hours uh, a few times john um and i one thing that really stuck out to me was when when you went to the the second location and were trying to repel those assaults i mean i I know it's it's a movie but i've also read accounts of it were there dozens upwards of of a hundred uh assaulters coming after you at the compound um i don't i don't think they all i think at the consulate um there's quite a few and like i said uh, the third time they tried to come and take it the drone we were getting the, the the information from the drone feed they were seeing the people gathering so they they said it was upwards between 50 to 100 guys moving on them and then over at our compound i think they only came out as maybe with 50 guys at a time but uh through both attacks that i saw and then the third and final attack i think they probably only had about a handful of handful of guys because they came from a different direction we're speaking to John Tig Teagan. He was a member of the Benghazi uh, security team, and he's also co-author of 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi. Uh, John, when, when people talk about this publicly, of course, there's a, still a lot of back and forth as to whether uh, whether more could have been done, more should have been done to get you guys help on the ground in theater and whether the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State uh, dropped the ball. What, what, what do you say to those people? What, what's, what's your take on it? I mean, it's totally obvious they dropped the ball. You know, they're more worried about the political career than people's lives over there because if they would have, you know, the, the, their biggest problem is they're always worried about um, offending someone else instead of saving someone's life. I mean, that, that night was a perfect example. You had a Marine Fast Company, you know, that got told to change uniform three times instead of just coming. I mean, the the locals, they ain't going to care if you, you know, if they knew anything about the, the locals at all, they wouldn't have cared if Americans came in and helped save other Americans or anybody else. At that point in time, they loved us. I mean, they're, they'd come up, they'd shake our hand, they'd thank you, they'd say, I'm so honored to meet an American. I'm so, you know, just all the time. And you know, there's just they just had no clue what was going on over there. John, you were a, a military sergeant and an infantry squad leader uh, before you were a security uh, contractor. Um, tell me a bit about you know that night in Benghazi. Did you start to think that it just wasn't you weren't going to make it through? I mean, you can you can never think that way because I mean you you put yourself you know in a bad spot and you're thinking negative. I mean, you always. I was just thinking positive. I mean, I was a you know, I had the Marine Corps training, and plus, you know, when I was moving down towards the consulate, I had two Navy SEALs, you know, I had one on my left, one on my right. You know, I could have took on the whole city for all I knew, you know. I mean, that you're just focused on the attacks in front of you. You're not worried about if you're going to fail or not. You just, you know, you just pick up one thing, you go, pick up the next, and you go. I mean, that's because if you worry about you're going to just fail and not make it out, you're probably going to not make it out. If you didn't have that team of guys with you, though, that are, that are depicted in 13 Hours, that I'm, and that I know you write about also in your book by the same title, uh, I assume it would have been it would have been even worse, and there could have been a much greater loss of life. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you know, we're they, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, the group of guys that were there, you know, I was on my third trip in Benghazi, and the guys who were supposed to be on that trip 
just got moved to another area, you know, like two weeks prior to them shipping out to Benghazi. So, I mean, if those guys were there, who knows what could happen? You know, it could have been a whole different, you know, we could all went over there, you know, because we went left instead of right or something, you know. I mean, everything seems to happen for a reason sometimes. John Tig Teagan is with us now. He's a member of the, he was a member of the Benghazi uh, security team, and he's also co-author of 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi. Uh, John, I just wanted you to tell us your thoughts. You know, right now we've got uh, U.S. personnel, um, different services and and doing different jobs for for the government all over the world in, in harm's way. It's American Heroes Week, and there hasn't been as much of a focus in the media on this as I certainly would like and that I think should happen. Just what are your thoughts on on what's going on for those who are serving and, and the the conversations the country could be or should be having right now about our those who are deployed overseas? I know the circle I run, I mean, we all, we you know, we, we still think about them all the time. You know, we call, you know, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Red Friday. Every Friday you wear red, remember everyone deployed. Um, you know, it's kind of sad that, yeah, you're right, the media doesn't talk about it. So they're still worried about some Russian thing, whatever. And, you know, the guys, are, they're still over there risking their lives, you know, for freedom. And it, it, it should be talked about all the time. And, you know, I don't – it's unfortunate that it's not. But it, I think what Trump is doing, though, it's – I think he's – he's letting the military they're pretty much he unchained the military they're allowed to do what they want so the media is not as impressed because you're not messing up as much and not as bad stuff is going on when the other administration involved because they had them so clinched tight they couldn't do anything so you you really feel there is a difference just in, in the tone and and that's something that not just uh good for morale on our side of things but the enemy also takes notice compared to what was going on during the obama administration oh yeah big time i mean you know, within a month of uh, Mad Dog being in office, he drops the Moab for the first time since, you know, never been used in combat. I think that woke up a lot of those guys over there because the tactics totally changed. You know, we went back on the offensive instead of being on the defensive. Well, John, I really appreciate you joining us here on the show. Anywhere you want to direct people, uh, you've obviously uh, got your book, 13 Hours, the Inside Account of What Really Happened in Benghazi. Anything else you want to bring up? I mean, I mean, we got a. I started my own uh, charity foundation. You can go onto my website. You can, there's a link on it. Um, we, we partnered up with Halo for Freedom Warriors dot org um, to help you know, veterans with PTS and and stuff like that. So, you know, if you need if you need help, you can con you know contact us through that. Or if you need you know a veteran who needs any any help, I mean, I work with other veteran nonprofits that help out a lot of veterans that you know are in trouble and. I mean, yeah, if you know somebody who needs it, just contact us and we can help. All right. Uh, John Tig Teagan, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you for calling in, and uh, God bless. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, Team, we are going to go to a break. We'll talk about uh, Jeff Sessions on the other side of this. Stay with me. The bottom line is he wants him to resign. On Friday, I said that uh, uh, Sessions was a wounded man walking. Last night on Special Report, I said he was a dangerously wounded man walking. Tonight, he's a dead man walking. There is no way that a president can humiliate a cabinet member, a strong supporter from the beginning, in the way that Trump has done, just piling it on uh, and expect that this relationship is going to last. He'll either be fired 
or, I mean, it could be that he's decided that he's going to dig in his heels and some kind of resistance he'll stay in office no matter what. But this cannot last. There you have Charles Krauthammer making the case that something's got to give with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. We also had uh, Lindsey Graham earlier today saying that if uh, Sessions were fired, there, there would be hell to pay. So there are clearly a number of uh, critics on the right of the possibility of a firing of Jeff Sessions. I have said all along, and, and I still stick to this analysis up to this point, that I do not believe that Donald Trump will fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Will the Attorney General resign? I think that is more likely than Trump firing him, but I still think that that will not happen because Jeff Sessions is an honorable public servant who really believes that he is, in fact, serving the public. He's somebody who takes not just his day-to-day, but the overall mission of his job very seriously. And he's conducted himself thus far as a consummate professional in his role. And it's, it's look, it's unfair to me. I th- From what I see and what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, the administration's not being fair to, to Jeff Sessions. And it's one thing for some of the other uh, people in the Trump orbit to get caught up in the Trump in the president's maelstrom, uh, but they're not necessarily people who you would think would be in that role to begin with, and so you would expect there to be mistakes, and you're not sure. And we, obviously, it's it is not the case that they will be around for all that long, depending on who we're talking about here. I mean, you know, Scaramucci, all the stuff he's been saying. Who knows what's next for the West Wing? Who knows? who will still be around in the White House communication shop. But Sessions is somebody who brings a conservative credibility to this administration and has been, I think, for a lot of people, including people like me, who had uh, misgivings about where all this Trump stuff was going early on, who were supporting, uh, who was supporting other candidate uh, in the primary uh, and then came over to Trump's side against Hillary in the general. But many of us were like, okay, Jeff Sessions is a really strong pick. And, you know, I've got, Sessions, I, I believe, is, is going on TV tonight to say that, going on Fox, to say that he is insulted by this. And he, he is uh, personally uh, annoyed by what's been going on here with the Trump tweets and just the general tone about the attorney general from the White House. Now, I know I've, I've said that maybe there's some alternative theories here. Maybe Trump is intentionally putting heat on Sessions to force the media to come to Sessions' defense and talk about how great he is. And then when Sessions actually, when this when this sort of cools down and Sessions comes to Trump's aid in a very important way, whether it's, I don't know, firing Mueller, but he's recused himself, so he can't do that. But who knows? I mean, you know, you, you, in some act of attorney general discretion, Uh, doing something that's really valuable for the Trump administration in an area where it's clearly politicized, right? No one's saying that this would be a case of Jeff Sessions bending or breaking, well, certainly not breaking the law, but bending his interpretation of the law uh, in order to just suit Trump's wishes. But I'm I'm theorizing here. I, I don't know. I do know that there are a lot of us out there who would be really concerned if Sessions were to go. I don't think there's anybody who could take that role, at least that comes to mind, who would be uh, as good of a pick for attorney general right now. And 
There need to be, I mean, I want to see people in Trump's circle, in his top circle, uh, I need to see people who can tell the president that he's wrong and can tell the president things that he doesn't want to hear. I'm getting worried that this White House, with the nepotism of the family members and then, you know, pushing out some of the other GOP people. And I mean, who? I mean, I think Reince, by the way, if you want to place bets right now, I think you have to figure that Sessions goes long before. I'm sorry, part reverse that. Reince goes long before Sessions would go. Uh, the stuff with Reince looks like that's I mean, he's he's getting teed up for uh, for a rough exit from the White House. I mean, I I feel like they might just turn off his key card. He may show up one day to the White House and it's just like, man. He's like, what's going on here, guys? I thought I worked at the White House. They're like, sorry, Mr. Priebus. Uh, and they might escort him from the premises. I, I just, I don't see that getting much better for him. And he's clearly, Scaramucci understands, uh, the mooch understands how to uh, work the media, at least for maximum attention, and to, to get a lot of uh, his messaging out there. So I, I think Priebus is probably not going to be around all that long. Uh, but then again, you know, it, it's th- this is all part of the this all makes sense. You got Donald Trump coming from a reality TV background where people are scrambling to stay on the show to keep their job in a sense week after week. And it's very theatrical and it's an atmosphere that he's comfortable in. And I think you're seeing some of those reality TV habits manifesting themselves in the way the White House is functioning. And I, I'm not pretending that this is a particularly uh, unique insight into things. I think this is quite clear at this point, that this is what's going on, that there is a very serious uh, connection between what Trump has been uh, doing in recent weeks and really even stretching back for months now and the way that he was used to conducting himself as a, a reality TV host and somebody who's an entertainer. Uh, look, his biggest... His biggest political weapon is his ability to command a room and to get attention for himself and to make the other guy look small or make the other guy look inept or gal, as the case may be. So none of this is is outside of the Trump uh, comfort zone. We'll just have to see uh, whether or not the uh, White House starts to feel a little bit more like a well-oiled machine. I think it gave them, I think it might have given the Senate a little more breathing room to figure out their whole skinny repeal thing. Whether that was intentional or not, I can't say. But I can tell you that uh, this has got to get fixed because that special counsel is still working behind the scenes. And there are going to be some rough days ahead for this White House. Uh, that, that much is for sure. And I'm starting to feel like they're forgetting who their allies are and who their enemies are. And that's a dangerous place for any administration to be in. And I'm, I have uh, very, very real concerns about that. Uh, we're going to talk about Pew polling on attitudes about, uh, or attitudes of, um, from American Muslims, as well as a whole bunch of other issues coming up in the next hour. We'll have an American hero joining and more. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? 
Shields High. All right, welcome back, Team Buck. This week, the White House declared to be American Heroes Week. With all the health care politics going on, though, they haven't spent as much time, I think, highlighting American heroes as they had initially anticipated. Well, we have no such problem here in the Freedom Hut. We want to take a moment to talk to an American hero, Air Force Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro, Jr., He was told that he had just a 15% chance of survival after an IED explosion rocked his Humvee in Afghanistan. And he's going to tell us about his story and about overcoming this uh, horrific incident and how he has uh, gone on. And he is an American hero. Um, Air Force Master Sergeant Del Toro, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show, sir. Please tell us your story, sir. What happened? I was up in Afghanistan out on a mission with my team, and it was December 4th, the day I got hurt. Uh, we're on our way to pick up uh, the other half of our team, and where we're at, there was only one road in, one road out. And as we're going, like I said, on the way to pick up, pick up the guys, uh, across this creek, and no more than 200 meters in across the creek, do I feel this intense heat blast on the left side? And I was thinking to myself, holy crap, I just got hit. And people talk about their lives flashing in front of them. And, you know, I never believed that. But when I got hit, you know, these images were just coming through my head. You know, me and my wife were finally going to get married, you know, by the church after a third attempt. You know, then teach my boy how to, you know, play baseball, you know, teach him all these things. And then something clicked. And it's like, I got to get out of this truck. Uh, but when I got out of the truck, I was on fire from head to toe. And, and I tried to run through the creek. Uh, but the flames overtook me and I collapsed and I'm thinking I'm going to die there and thinking I broke my promise to my family that I always come back broke my promise to my son that I will never let him grow up to die dad like I did because I lost my dad at the age of 12 and that's when my teammates helped me up and we pulled up the creek and and the sound that I heard is the same sound you hear when you take a hot pan in cold water that sizzle sound but my job didn't stop there because it, it was a plan ambushed. Uh, they knew who to hit that were the, the attack piece, attack the control party. Attack pieces were short. The guys that called in the airstrikes. So they hit me, and the guys who were going to pick up, uh, they caught them in the crossfire. So now they're calling back, saying they need help, they need support. Luckily, one of my other team members had a radio because mine were destroyed, my vehicles were destroyed. And I told him, hey, man, get on this frequency, repeat everything I say so we can get some help for these guys. And at the same time, you know, the medic's trying to take care. He's like, no, I'm, I, I'm okay. Yeah, I just figured I had my, my eyebrows singed. And by the time the last transmission went out, that's when I had, I was getting tired. I was getting sleepy. And, you know, I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to rest. And they my medic wouldn't let me. He's like, can't fall asleep. I was like, DT. Because I can't. I was like, you know, he he knew that I had lost my dad when I was young, and I said, I'll never let that happen to myself. So he used that to keep me up. He's like, come on, DT, fight first. You got to fight first. Son. He said, you never let him grow without a dad. And it worked. It worked till the medevac came, and they wanted to carry me. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I walked into this fight. I'm going to walk out of this fight. And I got on the helicopter uh, and just thinking, like, oh, my God, I'm going to get some good drugs and just finally chill and relax. 
And I remember the flight. I remember landing at our forward operating base, going into a little, the field hospital. The, the doctor cutting off my watch and telling me I was going to be okay. That was December 405. I wake up March 06. So you were out for how long? Four months. My gosh. And what was the diagnosis initially, uh, Sergeant Del Toro? What What did the doctors tell you when you came to? Well, when I came to, they had told me. Well, at first they asked me if I knew where I was at the day, and I was still thinking it's December, you know, in Afghanistan. They're like, no, you're in San Antonio. It's almost close to end of March. And um, then they start telling me, like, you know, we gave you a 15% chance to live. 80% of your body has third-degree burns. You almost died on us three times. But, you know, now that you're awake, you still have a long recovery. You're still going to be in the hospital for another year and a half. Uh, you may not walk again. You'll be on a respirator for the rest of your life. And your military career pretty much over. And they sat there and waited to see what I was going to say. I couldn't talk because I had a trach in my throat. So they were reading my list. But I used some colorful words, but the gist of it was, you can go to hell. And two months after they told me that, I left the hospital, left the hospital walking and breathing on my own. We're speaking to U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro, who was uh, wounded in Afghanistan and became a uh, Paralympian and received uh, the ESPN Pat Tillman Award. And we're getting to that part of the story here in just a moment. So... Uh, Sergeant Del Toro, you tell them, you tell the doc, sorry, that's not going to be me. They, they've already told you at this point, you got a 15% chance of survival. You're never going to walk or breathe on your own again. What did you do? H- how did you get on your pathway to becoming a Paralympic athlete who was setting records? It was probably a combination of my son, but also the last words my dad ever told me was, always take care of your family. And I, I used that thinking, you know, if I'm just accepting what they told me, I'm not showing my son anything because I'm ex- accepting the diagnosis. I was like, that's not going to happen. It's like, I'm going to show my son that no matter what's in, in front of you, you keep pushing, you keep fighting, keep a positive mind, you find that fire inside of you, you overcome those these immense obstacles that are one with given like myself, uh, but it, it was just, you know, just kept pushing, you know, am I going to sit here and say, I never had a bad day. Of course I did. You know, I went from a 200 pound muscle head to 115 pounds, but I wouldn't let that, that darkness overshadow my, my goal. I kept finding that my thing was like, I'm not going to give the satisfaction of those guys that left that uh, IED in Afghanistan I don't think they all, they probably ruined this guy's life. He's probably hating life. He's like, no, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the guy sitting on the couch, staring at the window, saying, why me? No, I want to be the guy out there fighting, pushing, showing everyone I'm still enjoying life. I'm still showing the true spirit of the American spirit and fighting on. And what Paralympic sport did you compete in, uh, Sergeant uh, Del Toro? I'm a shot put in discus thrower. And you received ESPN's Pat Tillman Award. Tell me about that. Well, that was pretty crazy. You know, uh, they first called me up and said, as like, uh, you know, ESPN would like to invite you to the ESPYs. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, that's 
probably the only award show I ever watch. You know, I don't care about any of the other ones. You know, sports is a big thing for me. So I was like, you know, that was like a bucket list item for me. And they, and so they hang up, hung up, and I'm here at work, and I'm telling my wife, like, dude, they, they, they invited me to the SPs. And then they call like 20 minutes later, like, you do know you're a finalist for the Pat, Pat Tillman Award for service. I'm like, what? So like, you're messing with me. He's like, no, it's for, for real. I was like, okay. I was like, in a couple of days, they're going to call you and let you know. He's like, all right. And they hung up, and I'm just telling now, everyone, I'm really, now I'm really excited. Uh, and then, like, a couple of days later, uh, ESPN was on the phone with uh, uh, people from the Pat Tillman Foundation. It's like, Sam Latour, we'd like to congratulate you. You're the winner of this year's uh, SP's uh, Pat Tillman Award for, winner for, for service. And Sergeant Del Toro, I, I meant to also ask you about being the, you're the first 100% combat disabled Air Force technician to re-enlist. I am. I was the first to go to do it. Uh, you know, my thing was, I wanted to end on my terms, not on the terms of the people that left that bomb. And I, and I truly love being in the military, I truly love serving my country, and and for a lot of people, it's hard for them to find a job that they truly love. And I truly love being doing being in the military and in the Air Force. I know that I can't be an operator again. You know, if the Air Force ever asked me, will you go down range? Of course, I'll be the first one volunteering. But I can still be an instructor. I can still teach young, young airmen that want to go into special operations uh, and teach them my craft because they'll eventually be the ones replacing us, you know, down range. So... You know, in February 2010, you know, I became the first 100% to say whatever to re-enlist in the Air Force. Well, Sergeant Del Toro, uh, you're an inspiration to all of us listening. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with you. Uh, God bless you and your family, and uh, we really do appreciate your service. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, team. We are going to run into a break now. We'll be back with more. Stay with us. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly neat and out. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Is the Russian government providing arms to the Taliban in Afghanistan? It's a question that has uh, been asked for at least months now. We know that there was a press conference uh, back in April of this year where you had the commanding general of the U.S. forces and General Mattis posed uh, or reporters posed the question to them, do you believe or do you have any evidence that the Russian government is funneling arms, uh, particularly good small arms, to the Russian government? And here was the response of both uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis and General Nicholson. Doing this, uh, Thomas Gibbons from the Washington Post. Uh, if you, you two could just address uh, the influx of Russian weapons uh, into uh, Afghanistan and, and showing up in Taliban hands in Helmand, Kandahar, and Erzgan, and uh, what both of you, I guess, General Nicholson on the tactical and strategic level, and Secretary Mattis on the, uh, I guess, diplomatic level, political level of uh, what you're going to do to stop the Russians from sending these weapons in. Uh, seem to be choosing to be strategic competitors in a number of areas. Uh, the level of 
granularity and the level of success they're achieving, I think uh, the jury is out on that. The, the only thing I would add to that is that we, we continue to get reports of this assistance, and of course we had the uh, overt legitimacy lent to the Taliban by the Russians. Uh, that, that, that really occurred certainly late last year, beginning through this uh, process they've been undertaking, or legitimizing belligerents who perpetuate. Oh, no, I'm not refuting that. Now, you'll notice that Mattis was very circumspect and spoke about this as an issue of, well, we wouldn't want the Russians and it wouldn't be helpful for the Russians to be operating in strategic opposition to U.S. and coalition efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, but you'll also notice that General Nicholson said, you know, he's not not denying those reports either. It was really a neither confirm nor deny, but hey, if you really think about it, doesn't it kind of make sense? I mean, here's what I think is going on here. Well, before I, look, before I get into my analysis of that, you got new videos out. This was actually a CNN exclusive um, on videos that allegedly show uh, Taliban members who have weapons, including sniper rifles, Kalashnikov variants, and heavy machine guns that are supposed to be, or that are allegedly, according to these videos, provided to the Taliban by Russian government intermediaries, whatever that means. Uh, here's the reporting. Quote, two separate sets of Taliban, one in the north and, the, and another in the west, claim to be in possession of the weapons, which they say were originally supplied by Russian government sources. One splinter group of Taliban near Herat said they obtained the guns after defeating a mainstream rival group of Taliban, Another group say they got the weapons for free across the border with Tajikistan and that they were, quote, and that they were, quote, provided by the Russians. Uh, the videos don't provide incontrovertible proof of the trade of which Moscow has categorically denied involvement. So, of course, the, the, the Russian foreign ministry is saying, look, we, we're not doing that. Um, and if they were doing it, one would expect that the Russian government would want plausible deniability in this whole process. But this is yet another factor to keep in mind as we consider, as the U.S. government right now, as President Trump and uh, General Mattis and other national security senior officials and Pentagon officials, as they're considering the way forward with Afghanistan and our now 16-year-long war there, our war effort, uh, we need to keep in mind that not only do we have to be concerned about our ally, the central government in Kabul, we are allied with the Afghan government, we've been working very closely with them and Afghan forces for many years now to try to get this country uh, up and running from a governance and security standpoint, but there will also be a rush for influence if the U.S. does in fact entirely pull out of Afghanistan which I think we are just going to continue stalling on this process. I think that there is no real hope of a dramatic shift in the conflict's momentum right now. Uh, well, currently, the Taliban have the momentum. At best, we might be able to stall them or blunt some of their offenses. Uh, the Afghan government doing most of the fighting, but the U.S. and coalition forces in-country providing very necessary logistics and training support and, and other military assistance uh, on an as-needed basis, but there'll be the Russians and the Pakistanis and the Iranians and any number of countries. I mean, those are the those are really the, the big ones, but that are all going to be 
uh, jockeying for influence in Afghanistan. And that will mean very likely, especially if there is something of a power vacuum, even before an all-out civil war between the Taliban and the central government of Afghanistan could resume, if there, did, if there were uh, areas of the country that became officially, or, or not officially, but de facto under Taliban governance, you will see, I think, different countries, different regional players who are trying to establish uh, or, or who will try to establish deeper ties to belligerence. And the belligerence meaning uh, Taliban, uh, Haqqani network allied to the Taliban, uh, perhaps even some con- uh, connectivity with Islamic State factions in Afghanistan, different warlords from all across the spectrum. I mean, you're going to have all the the patchwork of ethnicities and identities that are the uh, that, that make up Afghanistan will immediately become something that is of much much higher in mind for those watching the conflict there because you'll have Tajiks and Uzbeks and Pashtuns and all these different factions will be backed by their uh, closest um, ethnic and and regional uh, power broker or closest ethnic and, and regional. Um, supporters. So the situation the Taliban, I think, is or the situation in Afghanistan is likely to just continue to get uh, worse. And the Trump administration right now is so focused on these other issues, whether it's the Russia investigation, special counsel, White House upheaval, health care, huge issue needs attention right now, legitimate issue that needs attention right now. I think that Afghanistan has been put on the back burner and it is uh, boiling over, and there needs to be a, a very serious, sober conversation in this country about what the direction of this conflict, what the direction of this conflict and our role in it should be, and what's acceptable. If we pull up stakes and we say we're out of here, uh, what do we consider to be an acceptable outcome after that? It really is astonishing, though, that we're at this point that uh, the best that the policy circles can come up with is that we will find some negotiated settlement with the Taliban. I I just, why would anyone think based on the history of that group and based on the history of their alliances in the past, Al-Qaeda, Haqqani Network, the Islamic State, why would anyone think that the Taliban could be trusted to even keep to a peace deal if we were able to help negotiate a peace deal with the central government in Kabul? And shouldn't we all just be honest about the fact that if we're negotiating with the Taliban, it's because we think we have no choice And if we have no choice, it's because we can't win. And if we can't win, why would the Taliban stop fighting? That's the conversation. That's the real policy dispute. And America's longest-running war, which these days gets scant attention in the media, far too busy talking about Russia-Trump collusion fantasies and all the latest West Wing palace intrigue. Um, So we'll have to see. I'm going to keep watching Afghanistan closely. Team, we are going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. What do Muslims think about America? What do Muslims in America think about Donald Trump? And how do Muslims in this country view their day-to-day lives and their interactions with their fellow non-Muslim citizens? We have some data 
on these issues that we can look at now, courtesy of the Pew Research Center. So Pew did some polling, and I've uh, read through all of the analysis and the raw numbers, and I, I had some thoughts to share with you on their most recent project here. Uh, one of them was entitled Muslims and Islam, Key Findings in the U.S. and Around the World. Uh, so a few things that jump out to me right away. Uh, of course, uh, Muslims in this country, no surprise here, believe that there is a tremendous amount of anti-Muslim discrimination going on, a, a, quote, a lot of discrimination, and that is a view that 75%, 75% of Muslim respondents to the survey holds. Um, about a third of Muslims, uh, and again, I'm just going to start speaking in, in, in generality here based on the survey data, right? So this is just, this is, a po this is polling, it's not perfect, but it's a snapshot of, of opinion. So about a third of American Muslims believe that others around them have acted suspiciously because of the fact that there is a Muslim near them. Uh, about a fifth of Muslims say that they have been called an offensive name, and about a fifth of them have, have claimed that airport security has singled them out. Uh, first of all, uh, I have been singled out many times by airport security, uh, so that's no surprise at all, I including like when I worked in counterterrorism for the NYPD. I mean, I I've been grabbed by airport security in the literally grabbed uh, by airport security in the past. So how much of that is just the perception bias of the individual responding to the survey? Who knows, right? But there you have it. Um, I think that's one thing that we should, we should uh, definitely keep in mind here is that there are perception influencers here uh, that we just, if you're going to understand the survey data, you got to look at that too. Okay, 10% uh, thought they had been singled out by law enforcement, and 6% claimed to have been physically threatened or attacked. Uh, that's just interesting to me because if you look at the number of hate crimes in this country against uh, Muslims, you're looking at about a couple of hundred in any, any given year, including mean statements and offensive comments. So if 6% of, of these respondents, if that is representative, again, it's just a survey, but if that were representative of Muslims across the country, well, you'd have to have a pretty substantial number of people. I mean, based on the Muslim population, you're looking at uh, well over 100, close to 200,000 people would have had to be physically threatened or attacked in the last year. So I don't know if that's just a bias in the survey or if that, uh, but that would be way more assaults and threats and attacks against the Muslim population than the FBI records in any given year. So uh, just putting that out there. 62% of Muslims, and by the way, there was some very positive stuff in the survey that a, a strong majority of Muslims, a huge majority of Muslims, uh, overwhelming number of, of American Muslims are proud to be American and believe in the American dream. And so there, there are some very positive things. But these are I'm going into the areas where I believe a little more scrutiny and more analysis is warranted and, and, and is interesting. So 62% of Muslims do not believe that Americans do not view Islam as part of mainstream American society. Uh, well, this is very interesting, isn't it? Because you've had people like uh, President Obama who have made the, the claim that Islam is integral to the fabric of this country and has been since the founding. 
and that includes nearly 7 million American Muslims in our country today, over 1,200 mosques within our borders. That's why the United States government has gone to court to protect the right of women and girls to wear the hijab and to punish those who would deny it. So let there be no doubt, Islam is a part of America. A few things uh, in that exchange. Uh, one, that according to Pew, there are about 3.3 million, not 7 million Muslims in America. I don't know where President Obama got that figure. Interesting that it's double what uh, what a m- major uh, researcher into the topic comes up with. But uh, nonetheless, also, it's called the hijab, not the hajib. So President Obama, who spent some of his formative years in Indonesia, um, unfamiliar with one of the most well-known uh, Arabic words in the world, uh, but digress. Okay, back to uh, this survey, this Pew survey. So so like I was saying, Obama will talk about Islam in this country and how it's integral to this country. But the notion that Muslims would not be, quote, considered mainstream, they're one percent of the population. So that's what what would be, you know, what does mainstream mean in the context of the survey? When you're one percent of a population uh, and you don't have particularly extensive roots as 1% of the population. I mean, it's a relatively recent phenomenon of much greatly increased uh, Islamic immigration into the United States. Uh, You did not have a tremendous amount of Islamic immigration until post-1960s America and the Great Great Society programs and Teddy Kennedy's Immigration Act, right? So, you, you did not have the influx of Muslim immigrants into the country that you've seen in recent decades. Um, so I just think that's an interesting context for that part of this. Um, you also have, of course, there's absolute no shock, no shock here whatsoever, that 74% of Muslims think Trump is unfriendly toward them, uh, which that's, I would have guessed it was actually higher. Uh, by the way, Muslim Americans are uh, almost entirely... Uh, unified as big government and Democrat voters. I mean, you're looking at 70 to 80 percent of Muslim Americans want bigger government, want more government services, and also are Democrats and will vote for the Democrat. But it should be noted that 8 percent in this survey, 8 percent of American Muslims voted for Donald Trump. So there you go. And in fact, according to Pew, 28 or sorry, 26 percent of American Muslims say that Trump makes them happy, or hopeful rather, and 17% says that he makes them happy. So, you know, there's a pretty good chunk that are actually pro-Trump. I think that would surprise people. Um, And again, with all the provisos and caveats about how accurate this poll may be or not. Big takeaway for liberals, I thought was really interesting here, is that there's been a big shift where about uh, 50% of American Muslims say that society should accept homosexuality. That is double what it was 10 years ago. Now, liberals point to this, of course, as evidence of the continued uh, progress within Islamic communities to be, well, to not be regressive on liberal issues. Uh, I wonder how much of this is a recognition that in the liberal politics, identity politics hierarchy, uh, I, I think that uh, homosexuality or same-sex couples, gay marriage, gay rights, 
uh, are right lined up with uh, Muslim Americans in terms of who has more who has more elevated uh, political status on the left. You know, who is in the in the leftist hierarchy of identity politics? Uh, do does the LGBT community outrank the Muslim American community? And therefore, Muslim Americans who are liberals, Democrats, and wish to be in, in good standing in one way or another with the party are more accepting. I, I, that's just a theory. I don't know, but I think it is very interesting. Now, it should also be said that uh, Americans more broadly are much more accepting of homosexuality across the board and over the last couple of decades. Uh, no surprise to many of you here as well that um, rating a, on a warmth scale uh, Islam was behind the seven other religious groups mentioned in terms of Americans feeling warmth towards a religion. Uh, they were just uh, just a little bit ahead of uh, atheists. I'm sorry, no, just behind atheists. Yeah. So Islam was last in terms of Americans' perception of a religious faith and their warmth towards that religious faith. That's all Americans polled. Um, so anyway, just some interesting data from Pew. Thought I would share it with you. We'll hit a break here and uh, we'll be back in just a sec. Stay with me. What difference at this point does it make? It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again. Indeed, that's one of Hillary Clinton's most famous ever recorded moments and of most notably for what difference does it make. But then she went on to say, it's our job to figure out what happened. I don't think that's where she got the title for her upcoming memoir, soon to be released from uh, Simon & Schuster, but it, it certainly is the title of her uh, upcoming memoir. That's right. What happened is Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign book. It's amazing. I'm going to go into... Why the American people were too dumb to vote for me because I'm so charming and talented and worthy. It's going to be brutal uh, for those of you who actually get the book and try to read it. This is one of those books, I should note, that I would wager, and, and you can't ever prove me wrong, which is one of my favorite kinds of wagers, but I would bet that 90% of the people who buy this book, which I'm sure Simon & Schuster are going to pay uh, millions and millions of dollars for. But I would bet that 90% of the people who actually purchase it or have a copy of it given to them will never read it. This is a book that you buy in hardcover form. What happened? First of all, we all know what happened. No, you don't. I'm going to tell you in my book. Hillary, we know what happened. But when you purchase this or when you have this on your bookshelf, what you're doing is telling anybody who comes to your home that you're the kind of person who has Hillary Clinton's latest memoir. That's really, that's really what, the, what purpose it serves. There's nothing you're going to find out from this that you did not already know. And if you believe the propagandistic, It's because I was a woman, or it's because my voice is not as pleasant as it could be. Uh, if, you, if you believe that that's why she didn't win... Well, you, you already think that, and so reading a long-form ghost-written account of it by Hillary Clinton, quote by Hillary Clinton, uh, is not going to change anything. You're going to learn nothing new in the process, and it, it just serves to reinforce the narrative that you have already adopted entirely. Uh, but I, I am curious to see 
what goes on with Hillary's book tour. I'm sure that she will be asked to speak in all kinds of places across the country, uh, and she will address the issue of Russia. I also, you know, Russia as it affected the campaign, and, you know, she'll she'll make comments here and there to get headlines, you know. Well, you know, I could have been a better campaigner, but then again, I didn't know I was running against Vladimir Putin. You know, you're going to have a lot of stuff like that. Uh, which will, of course, get headlines. The media will love it, and it'll refocus attention on that issue. And so there's no surprise there. But the title of the book, What Happened, it, it, I have to give them credit. It's very clever because there's, for people who uh, who like Hillary, the title, the, the implied, or the there's an implied question mark. It's what happened, or perhaps what happened. Uh, but for for people who are on the right or who didn't vote for Hillary, who voted against Hillary, including many former Democrats or current Democrats who just couldn't pull the lever for her, the book is more of a like, what happened? You got to be kidding me. It's like trolling. So it's very effective in that sense. And I, I give credit where it's where it's due. Uh, but I, I also believe uh, for the that there will be political uh, takeaways from this or that. This will be part of a rebranding effort for Hillary Clinton to become America's uh, sort of wise grandma. Uh, she will replace Madeleine Albright, who I think had previously been the Democrats' go-to wise grandma of America on issues of state and politics. They would cite Madeleine Albright as though she was some wildly successful secretary of state who left a legacy of fantastic policies when uh, if you look back at what happened when Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State and what went on with North Korea and where we are now, you might be like, hmm, maybe nobody should listen to Madison Albright about anything. But what I'm excited for uh, most of all is that I'm, I'm hoping that Hillary does the audiobook of what happened so I can sit there for hours and hours at end while she's like, and then Donald Trump, who's a sexist and a racist was being so terrible, and people should have just loved me more. Uh, so, anyway, I have to stop doing a Hillary impression. I'm going to blow out my voice. But, yeah, I, I think I sound pretty close to Hillary. I, I think I convey—see, this is the thing. I don't pretend that, that, that the Hillary voice is a, a close approximation of what she sounds like, but it really does distill her essence as a person. You, you really know—you hear Hillary on this show in the Freedom Hut, and you know Hillary— uh, and I feel like you could probably even pick her out of a pick her out of a, a voice lineup, even though I don't sound much like her, just because she's terrible. Uh, so the Clintons are going to try to resurrect the brand, and part of that will be uh, a book that is is likely to I, I would I would guess more a mea culpa than an apologia, more of a my bad than a straight up defense of why she lost. Uh, I also don't think that this will be. This is not a story that a whole lot of Democrats are going to want to revisit, except insofar as she can try to make uh, unfounded or uh, just whatever the case may be of her accusations about Russia. But as much as she can get Russia into the conversation, that will be useful for the Democrats. But to the extent that she's just rehashing the past with the help of some very overpaid ghostwriters, I don't think that there's going to be uh, much to get excited about, much that will be new in this book at all. So get get ready for it, everyone. It's coming out, uh, when is this memoir supposed? Not that any of you are going to buy it, but I'll, I'll probably get a copy of it just because I get copies of books. 
But whatever. It's coming out at some point. You can go pick it up. What happened? Uh, maybe I should do the audiobook. I think that'd be great. That'd have me do the audiobook version of Hillary Clinton's latest memoir. Uh, team, thank you so much for hanging out with me here in the Freedom Hut. I'm excited to be joining you tomorrow as per usual. Same time, same place. Uh, we have a new Shields High t-shirt that will be going up on BuckSexon.com soon. If it's not already up, it'll be up in the next day or two. So if you're waiting for Shields High, then uh, it's it's coming your way. We're going to have it in a, in a bunch of different and fantastic colors as well. Navy blue, gray, uh, and buying Team Buck gear, uh, as well as, of course, checking out any uh, sponsors. And when I give you that sponsored uh, url um you know go to whatever the product is dot com slash buck going to check out the sponsors uh picking up a t-shirt picking up a mug a hat these are all ways that you can support what otherwise is free content for you so we often talk about making choices that uh, affect the marketplace of ideas if you are somebody who supports what we're doing here on Team Buck, then this is a great way for you to show it. And and I do really appreciate it. And we're hoping that a lot of you will be tweeting out or more likely posting on Facebook uh, photos of you, perhaps uh, family, friends, wearing the Team Buck gear because that's always fun to share. And uh, we just love seeing people across the country uh, who are part of the Freedom Hut. So thank you as always. A great honor to be here in the hut with all of you. Excited to do the same tomorrow for a Freestyle Friday. But until then, of course, Shields High.